welcome back to Gentle Man, redefining manhood in the 21st century. My name is Arjuna. I'm your host. I'm excited to bring another guest interview to the show today. This time it's with my friend Sage Liskey. Sage is someone I've known for a long time, and I've been excited to get him on the podcast for a long time. He's an Oregon-born author, artist, designer, poet, event organizer, and public speaker. He's the founder of the Radcat Press, and he writes books about uplifting lives and reimagining society. His works include You're a Snarky Darkness, Radical Self-Care, and You Are a Great and Powerful Wizard. He has a lot to say on the topic of wellness, and I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Enjoy it. Sage, I'm really excited to have you in the studio today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Arjuna. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. I'm fortunate to have the privilege to be able to see you quite often. And so a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, I think, will be informed in part by the series of conversations that we've had, you know, stretching back the many years that we've known each other. So I'm excited to be able to capture some of that on the show today. So yeah, one of the reasons that I've been excited to have you on the show is that we've had a lot of conversations over the years that I think somewhat indirectly relate to men, men's struggles, men's challenges. And one topic that we focused on a lot, which I wanted to kick us off with, is wellness. You've written, I basically consider every book that you've written to be about wellness in one form or another. But maybe you could start us off by sharing about your work and sharing about some of the themes that have come up in your work. Absolutely. Yeah, I write a lot about self-care and how to overcome trauma, depression, anxiety, really trying to zoom out on individual, communal, cultural, and societal levels in order to create a more holistic view of self-care. I think that's something that uh, a lot of writers miss in the self-care world, that it's not just you, it's your peer group, it's your upbringing, your parents, your environment, the nature around you, the architecture, the art, the government, um, just so many, there's so many layers to how we nourish ourselves. But we do have most control over our individual selves. So I think that is a big focus that I, I have and many other writers choose to have. Yeah. So I'm curious if you would talk a little bit about what got you into wellness work. Why did you end up writing books focused on health and well-being? Yeah. Sometimes when people ask me this, I halfway jokingly say because I had a shitty childhood, but <laughs> you know, relatable. <laughs> but uh, writing began as a form of activism for me. So um, in part, it, it popped out of I come from a fine arts background, but I, I wanted something that impacted people a little bit more deeply and could sit with them. So writing came about as this thing that just felt natural as a creative form and something that I could do on my own as somebody more sensitive. I definitely struggled in some of the larger activist community that felt very harsh and very judging and very critical. And so it was nice to find something that like, okay, I can create change in the world 
but I can do it in the safety and helping regulate my nervous system in, in doing it. And I noticed a large need for more alternative-minded mental health information. Specifically, I was noticing a lot of the books on depression, anxiety, self-care, trauma didn't mention marginalized communities, didn't consider people who didn't have access to certain resources financially or insurance-wise, didn't mention anything on the level of larger societal harm that causes difficulties for people and families and communities. So really wanted to make a more holistic take on the genres of self-help. What I see you doing is trying to present information in a new way or in a novel way or in a way that's sidestepping some of these fundamental cultural biases. One piece that I really strove in towards is reframing how we talk about depression and anxiety. And so in radical self-care, I, I do name it trapped emotions. There's a lot of shame around words like trauma and depression. As a culture, we need we need things that are more accessible because I think men especially shy away from some of these terms that maybe feel like a sign of weakness or they just don't relate to. And getting back into why I got into writing, especially for radical self-care, it was noticing my own preconceived notions of trauma and for so long not identifying with them because they just felt too extreme, the language that was used to describe them. And you know, now I understand like, oh, I had a very traumatic upbringing, a very traumatic childhood. And I wish that I had known about these tools so much sooner. But because of how people talk about trauma, it just totally blew past me. I appreciate your presencing that uh, men in particular will sometimes struggle to connect with or identify these experiences. I think that's really insightful. And I that definitely relates to my own process. Like, for example, I struggled for a while to realize that I was depressed because I had this notion of what depression looked like that didn't match my behavior. I would think, oh, I'm not depressed. I just spend a lot of time alone and tend to come back to these same repetitive activities and feel some sense of ennui about things sometimes. And, well, I haven't hung out with anyone for a week. Okay, I'm actually depressed. And I do think that there was some amount of male conditioning going into that, right? I think there was some amount of feeling like, oh, no, like I'm emotionally self-contained and, you know, I keep myself busy and I'm being productive and I'm not having any intense negative feelings. So I guess that means I'm fine or I guess that means that I'm not suffering from this thing. There's so much value in exploring an experience from different angles to, to help people realize like, oh, yeah, that might actually apply to me just not in the way that I had a vision in my mind of what these words meant, but I see how they apply to my life and the shades of meaning for my life. I'm interested to hear to whatever extent you're comfortable in sharing. What were some of the things in your childhood that really gave you challenge? What are things that you look back on and realize like, oh yeah, that's really has affected me and I need to work with that now? Yeah, absolutely. A main one, growing up with an alcoholic. And I can frame that different ways. I think it, it maybe it is the joke of like people are always diminishing how bad it was or, or whatever. But I do feel like I had the better end of the spectrum of what an alcoholic father can be. But it, it was still difficult. And there was a lot of conflict between my parents. There was poverty in that. So a lot of fighting around money. 
a general sense of like, I can't necessarily trust this person who's supposed to be a guardian figure because his personality changes every single night. There's like this transformation from sober to drunken. More recently, I've recognized that growing up with parents who were always working, my mother was hardly ever around also. And so just recognized like, oh, okay, so I, I maybe didn't get a whole lot of time with my mom. And both my parents were very supportive. Anything we wanted to do, they really tried to make ends meet and make it happen. But maybe there wasn't quite as much of the emotional support there. So, you know, there was some stuff with both of my parents there that I think created some strife, but it's always hard to tell. And this is something I get into in radical self-care of what is your trauma stuff and what is your genetic stuff? Very well, my trauma could have started in the womb of like, well, maybe my parents were fighting and I was getting this stress cortisol directly sent to me. And who knows exactly how, how that was. I also had two siblings that were just a little older than me. So you know, that can create some issues around having dedicated time to the parent as well. But I do have a sense of, well, genetically, about 20% of people are born highly sensitive. So they're known as HSPs. And it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or extrovert. I'm more on the extroverted side of things. And there's a few different genes that they found code for this. I think it's maybe three different genes. And even if one is you know, off and it creates maybe different flavors of high sensitivity. There's a great book, I think by Elaine Aaron, or she has a few books on the topic. I suggest checking out. That's been interesting, just considering like, okay, even if this is trauma informed or what have you, I definitely exist in a semi highly sensitive state to some extent. And I need to be aware of some of the same things that HSPs need to be aware of in terms of regulating their stress levels and knowing when they're overwhelmed or being able to rest when they need to. That's one piece. The two other pieces of some childhood difficulty, I did start off stuttering. And I think that was potentially because my my siblings spoke for me. I guess that's something that can happen when you have young siblings that they speak for you, translate your babble, and so you don't get as much practice with your language. And so that created some bullying when I entered into elementary school. It was fairly quickly remediated in some speech pathology courses. So I think I I got some certificate in the first or second grade of completing this speech pathology course. But there was still some issues in how I spoke. And I definitely felt behind in my speaking. So even for a baby, I think my first word came out when I was maybe three years old, which I think is pretty late. So I've always felt maybe a little behind socially because of that. But later in high school, I joined the speech and debate team, and that seemed to help things quite a bit more. I am a very social person, and I've learned how to navigate conversations with some some eloquence, but I, I you know, I, I still feel behind and I feel the I, I sometimes compare myself with like, huh, I wonder I wonder what uh what it would be like if I didn't have those years missing in my social development. 
And then the final piece was I had a lot of food sensitivities that made me break out in acne and cysts. So that just created a lot of shame and a lot of self-judgment growing up. And I later figured out a diet that worked for my my body and that definitely brought up a, a lot of stuff. So, you know, all of those pieces together, I, I think it's it's hard to say any which way. And sometimes I look at my siblings and how they've developed and being like, well, they were in the same environment, but also we were all under very different circumstances. You know, I think I saw a more alcoholic version of my father uh, at a younger age. So there's so many pieces to how we develop and how our sensitivities and how our personalities develop that I find very fascinating, but also very frustrating sometimes of, oh, wow, I wish that there was just some magic thing I could do that would change, transform this thing about myself. But unfortunately, it doesn't quite work like that. But there are a lot of cool tools that you uh, we, we do have access to now. I'm particularly interested to hear you talk about because I also relate on some level is being a highly sensitive person and especially being a highly sensitive man. There can be some stigma around being a man who's just more sensitive or maybe being a man who doesn't project invulnerability the way that some men do, either for just not having that felt sense in your body or not wanting to project that. So I'm interested to hear you talk about that. Um, how, how has that experience been for you? How do you feel about it? And what are some of the things that you've had to confront or work on to live your truth in that? I think that's in some ways a very difficult question because I've always just been myself. So it's always difficult to tease apart, okay, like what would be this alternative version of Sage? I have a better and better sense, I think, of some of those things. And I feel really fortunate, though, too, that I grew up in a very liberal-leaning state and family and general environment. Being in Eugene, Oregon now, I feel like there is a lot of allowances for sensitive men to thrive in. So I, I haven't necessarily felt ever forced or confronted by a more traditional, you know, hard edge masculine world necessarily. I do have some sense that it's impacted, for instance, my dating life and my friendships. Since growing up, I've had a few friends who are men here and there, but I've I've mostly formed friendships with women. And I think that they're just having a more ease of conversing about emotions and maybe having deeper conversations, feeling a little safer. Like I do think having grown up with a father who was emotionally difficult for me sometimes to be around, I think that I had some trauma around men. And more recently, that's opening up of finding more men who are emotionally intelligent or we share enough in common that it's easy to get along and and there's not a sense of them being toxic in different ways or they don't trigger my sensitivities. 
Yeah, I, I really relate on this topic. I've had a similar experience of a lot of my closest friendships over the years have been with women because I, I've similarly found a greater ease in talking about feelings, talking about themes and subjects that have a resonance for me. But it's been really healing and helpful actually for me to have relationships with men, especially in my adulthood. I think in my childhood it was easier because so many children are kind of corralled into spending a lot of time around people who are their assigned gender. But in my adulthood, I think unconsciously I found the idea of having deep relationships with men a bit threatening. So, you know, I, I had these like pally relationships and housemates, people I lived with were often men and often felt pretty comfortable in those relationships. But I did often struggle to get the emotional or even perhaps the spiritual nourishment that I was looking for from those relationships. Something that's really helped me to deepen my friendships with other men is to realize that, well, you know, first of all, to realize that men in general and other men often have a similar emotional landscape that I have, and they maybe just don't have the same language to express it, or maybe they, for whatever reason, don't feel as comfortable hanging out there. Or maybe they would feel comfortable hanging out there, but they just haven't been invited to by other men. And so one of the things that I've really been practicing is just trying to get there more with the men that I hang out with. I've been taking a bit more of a proactive approach. If there's content that I want to talk about, then I try to bring it up. Or if there's behavior that I want to have in the relationship, trying to encourage that or even model that. And I found that a lot of men are actually pretty receptive to that once there's safety for it, once they feel an opening to go there. So it's something that I really encourage men to do if they're wanting to have deeper connections with other men, which I think is a really common challenge. You know, I think even men who hang out with a lot of other men and socialize with a lot of other men sometimes would like those relationships to feel a little bit more intimate or to have more safety in them, to have a feeling of even if we're not, you know, talking about our trauma all the time, to just feel like we can bring more of ourselves into our relationships with other men. And I think a lot of that is predicated on, I really like that you focus on safety. I think safety is such an important thing for men. It's kind of interesting to talk about because men are privileged and have a lot of bodily safety in a lot of ways that women and, and basically anyone who isn't a man don't. And so I think it can almost seem a bit, it can seem weird to focus on man and male safety when culturally and institutionally we have so much of it. But something that often gets missed is that men often fall victim to other men's violence. Men often feel like they have to keep up in some way to not succumb to other men's judgment or other men's violence. We as men are not exempt from some of the challenges that male-dominant culture brings. We ourselves often fall victim to some of these ills that are you know, often considered to be male problems. Absolutely. And I think in the vein of high sensitivity, in the realm of dating, there's a lot of fears there of, oh, am I going to cause harm? I, am I going to show up in a way that isn't approved by the feminist viewpoint now? What can I do to create safety for women? But then sometimes just being left behind because you're trying to be overly safe, maybe. Yeah, let's get into that, actually. I think that that resonates for a lot of men, especially at the moment, where men are feeling kind of unsafe to be maybe as forward as they want to be or to be as assertive as they'd like to be, especially towards women and especially in dating. 
and definitely something that I've experienced and struggled with. There's sometimes two conflicting propagandas around this. So one of them is women like assertive men, or women want men to present this like strong, confident front. And so if you're not doing that, then you're somehow going to fall short. And then there's this other side of it, which is, yeah, times are changing. Maybe women actually want to be left alone, or maybe women want to be approached in just a gentler way, or to have their sovereignty respected a little bit more. So I think that that can be really conflicting messaging for men to try to figure out what to do about that. I'd be curious to just hear you unpack a little bit more your own experience of, of working with that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting in that women have really advanced what it means to be women and what women are wanting, and men haven't necessarily transgressed that. And previously, there's been very specific dating norms, even, you know, flowers were a huge language, like different colors of flowers were this huge language, having different meanings for each different kind of flower. And it was kind of this very beautiful thing. And at this point in society and culture, in this changing of moving feminism along in these really beautiful and amazing ways and creating more rights and more powers uh, and more safety for women, some of these things have been left behind or there's just not a clear roadmap for men anymore to, you know, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to approach a person that we're attracted to in different ways? There are methodologies, but they're not necessarily very specific. And I know a number of men who have very charismatic personalities or are very funny, but then are also very avoidant or very unhealthy in relationship. I see those men connecting with women the most. And I think it's interesting being more cautious, more reserved in approaching women. It seems like that's not desired, but there's almost a free pass if you're funny and charming, which is very confusing, I think, in a lot of ways of like, well, I'm hearing from women that this is desired, but then I'm seeing that this type of man is having success in dating. And I don't always know what to do about that. I think that there's lessons there of like, okay, well, maybe it's okay to be forward. And there is, there is this allowance. And in my conversations with women, it is that seems to be the case of like, yeah, it's fine to talk to us respectfully or, you know, express interest. And, you know, there's cases I've experienced where it's not, or it makes things really weird, or it maybe destroys a friendship in different ways. That's always confusing as well. But I think the crux of the matter is that no two people are the same and there are certain characteristics that are desirable and learning how to respectfully harbor those characteristics while being aware of others. So some of the relationships I've seen that maybe have been more dysfunctional from men who have these very charismatic personalities, moving their dialogues along maybe means them being more open about, oh, this is something that's temporary, or this is a polyamorous situation for me, or this is something very casual, and just being very explicit about that nature of it. One of the things that I've been coming to lately around dating and approaching people and flirting and all that kind of stuff is really thinking about my intention, because I think intention goes a long way in either direction as far as whether you're being creepy or whether you're being 
overbearing, or whether you're being respectful. One of the things that I try to do is really check my intention when I'm interacting with people that I would be interested in flirting with or, or potentially dating. Giving myself a look in the mirror, like, what was I going for in that interaction? What was I wanting? How was I making eye contact? How was I conceptualizing that person? And if I, if I find myself thinking too much like, oh, that woman was really beautiful and I was objectifying her, or, oh, I was really focused on what I wanted to get out of that interaction, then I check myself, right? I'm like, that's not very cool. I was not seeing this person in the wholeness of who they are and I wasn't being open to the wholeness of what my interaction with them could be. I was more just kind of focusing on what I wanted. Or maybe I was having like a lustful moment or something like that. Working with that has really helped me because I do think that while even the best of intentions can go awry, if you're checking your intention and you're coming from a place of integrity and you're coming from a place of trying to interact with people in their wholeness, then I think that that goes a long way regardless of what else you're showing up with in the dating world. I also think it's important to note that Sometimes I've taken personally stuff which is just other people's shit. So sometimes like I've flirted with someone and I look back on it and I think, no, I, you know, I think I did that tactfully and respectfully, but I think it was triggering for them somehow. And I'm probably never going to know why. Maybe I remind them of an ex or someone who traumatized them, or maybe they're just going through a rough time in therapy and just about anyone making an advance on them would be hard, right? Yeah, I think that so, piece of self-reflection is so important and maybe something that <laughs> the highly confident players out there are, are not doing. They're not necessarily, they're just, okay, on to the next person, on to the next person, instead of having this self-reflection of, okay, how did I cause harm in this situation? Or why did these emotions come up? What emotions came up in me? And it is hard because we often seek out similar dynamics from partner to partner. So often we are seeking out some sort of familial dynamic or something that reminds us of our relationship to our parents or siblings. I once heard, I, I don't know who this quote is from, but it goes something like, uh, you don't date 10 different people, you date the same person 10 different times. Uh, even if those people might be different, maybe they all have an avoidant attachment style, or they all have an anxious attachment style. Or some people are really into just hooking up and having sex, and that's what they want. If that's consensual and what's desired, maybe that's the type of relationship you're getting into over and over again. But I think it's important to have that reflection and that knowledge of what is that person if you're dating people over like time and time again, like who is that person that you're seeking out? And it takes a lot of conscious effort to break out of those patterns because they are so habitually ingrained and so subconsciously ingrained. Absolutely. Yeah, it can even take a lot of effort to identify those patterns. I've been talking with my therapist lately, highly encouraged therapy for all of those listening. I've been talking with my therapist about, yeah, tr just trying to identify any patterns that might be coming up in my dating. And I'm struggling with it. And that doesn't mean there aren't patterns. It just means that I'm having trouble identifying them. But I think that's so important and not just for dating, just life in general, noticing especially anywhere that we're struggling, right? Anywhere that we're feeling like I'm not getting what I want or my life isn't looking the way I'd like it to look. I do think it's really important to focus on patterning, habits, assumptions. I think that's something that your work 
focuses on a lot, I've noticed, um, is that the aspect of it. If you've been enjoying the Gentleman podcast, I'd like to ask you for your help. Growing a community and an online presence takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of participation from listeners such as yourself to really help things take off. So if you value this show and it has been meaningful in your life, I would really appreciate it if you could help me out by doing one of the following. Leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen. That's a huge help as it helps the podcast rise in rankings and it also helps other people discover the podcast. Recommending it via word of mouth to your friends and family is another massive way that you can help this podcast grow following on social media and liking the content and maybe leaving a comment is another great way to support gentleman podcast is our instagram handle you can also find us on youtube at gentleman podcast three words watching and liking the videos on youtube is another great way that you can help the algorithm to know that this is valuable content i really appreciate your help and your support it's one of the things that will help me to keep making this content and to keep making it better as well thank you Something that we've been circling around a little bit, which I'd like to talk about a little bit more is, this is a big question, so come at whichever slice of it you're interested in coming at. You've been mentioning how women have been really claiming, redefining, expanding their notion of womanhood and what that means. I've thought for a long time, like, I've been envious of the feminist movement. That's such good work. And I want men to have that, you know, I want men to be part of that process as well. And I do think there's a lot actually, you know, honestly, just men being feminists and studying feminism, I think, can go a long way towards helping us to redefine manhood. Yeah, I'm curious to hear you talk about that. Like, how, how are you reconceptualizing manhood? Or, or, you know, what are you noticing? Or what opportunities are you seeing for men to, to be in their own process of redefinition? Yeah, this is a massive question that I, that I love so much. And I think that there could be many books written on this subject. I'll start by saying that it is interesting biology piece. So this is something I, I like getting into a, a little bit. A lot of our personality is hardwired at birth. It's like 50% of a lot of personality characteristics are genetic. Even uh, they found 50% of your political leaning is genetic. And empathy, your access to empathy, and empathy is also tied to different hormone levels. So for instance, on average, women are more empathetic than men are. I think this creates some interesting conversations around certain traits that humans evolved with that were maybe very adaptive or very useful are no longer useful in our more peaceful society world where we're trying to create more equality and more equity between people. People who are not as empathetic tend to make better leaders because they can make harder decisions. They can fire a person more easily, for instance, than somebody who maybe would, a lot of emotions would come up for them, hiring somebody who maybe wasn't that effective on the team. So I think that's something interesting to mull over of how do we make some of these personality characteristics that are maybe natural and maybe aren't entirely nurtured into people. 
how do we make them fit into modern day society and still useful and be something that still creates respect among people. But on the other end, all personality traits are at least a little wiggly. There's definitely some fluff to them. So even if you aren't the most empathetic person, you can learn the cues for empathy. You can learn to check in with a person when they're in distress. You can ask them if they need help on some level. You can visualize what they're going through and kind of have just check in with yourself like, okay, what is what is this experience like for them? And so some some of these things can be learned. There's going to be a lot of work, especially among children. I think among adults, it gets a lot harder. But among children, I'm really hoping to see a lot more in terms of conversations around consent culture, for instance, really verbally communicating questions or the the asks really on any level, things around touch and sexual consent, asking for emotional labor. That's a big one that women are talking about a lot of having to take on a lot of emotional labor. And another piece of it is learning meditation, mindfulness. It's something I didn't mention earlier that I think is a big piece of mindfulness meditation is journaling also. So in Buddhism, they split mindfulness into four pillars. So the four pillars of mindfulness are physical sensations. Second pillar is emotions. Third is thoughts. And the fourth is awareness. So mindfulness of of awareness. And the third piece, I think is, I mean, really all of them are journaling is really helpful for, but I think especially becoming aware of your thoughts. Because if you're just thinking by yourself, at least for me, I'm a little hamster wheel going, spinning, 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 and I'll reiterate, I'll ruminate on the same thought over and over and over again. Whereas with journaling, I can really build on something and really piece it apart. And it really opens me up in this way that it just can't get to typically with thinking or even often talking with another person. And so I hope that just some of these self-care techniques are taught in schools in a way that future generations can really integrate at a whole level. And similarly, I hope that more understanding is reached around um, these different genetic pieces because there are certain advantages that people get based upon their genes. Like your success in school is partly based upon how well you can focus and a few other genetic factors. And that means that there needs to be specialized curriculum because everybody can succeed and everybody can be really phenomenal at certain things, but they need to be given the tools in order to excel at those things. And I think it's similar with men moving into a culture of being more compassionate, more empathetic, more consensual, all these different things that would maybe create a safer world for women. In Radical Self-Care, I talk about this concept of cultural intelligence. And so cultural intelligence is the ability to understand another culture, knowing the little nuances of it in every form, from foods that they eat to gender norms, to language nuances, to nonverbal language. And I think that this is something that can be applied across the board. And in the book, I mostly talk about it at the racial lines and cross 
cultural conversations, but I think it really applies to gender norms as well. So I think that there isn't a lot of education around the needs of women, around, you know, what is a period? What is safe sex like? What are options for contraception for men and women? And just making this awareness, I think, is really important. And I think a lot of schools keep people in the dark about these topics. And that's changing bit by bit, at least in some of the more liberal areas of the country. I think it's going the opposite direction in other parts of the United States. But I do hope, in essence, that there's a huge changing of how we do school, because I think also success is so relational. And so if we can change school into a space where we're building successful relationships and we learn nonviolent communication or different methods of conflict resolution and how to successfully handle finances or how to buy a house or what you know what whatever it is to be a successful adult and really tapping into into that i think that would go a long ways in terms of changing and transforming the culture of men currently yeah, I really appreciate that. Starting early, starting basically as soon as you can with these conversations and awareness is so key. And one of the things that came up to me while you were talking about that was how a lot of attention has been given to the fact that boys and men seem to be trailing academically. And I wonder, I think there's so many different factors that can go into that. But one of the things I wonder is if some of the ways that our culture is setting women up are encouraging behaviors that really pan out in an academic setting. So I think one of the benefits of having an awareness of this early and starting these conversations early is that I think it could actually help boys and men to do better in academic settings as well. You know, maybe just having access to more awareness, more conversations, more behavioral patterns that might be like really pro-social for them might help them to thrive in academic settings, to thrive in relational settings, which it turns out, right, are so key to success, like you were saying, especially as the environment shifts from displaying dominance being a success tactic to, to yeah, having more emotional intelligence being a success tactic. So I think one of the reasons why we're seeing some men not do as well in the culture is because so-called male values that used to correlate to success are not doing that as much anymore. And again, there are these larger cultural shifts that are, can be pretty hard to sum or define, but my intuitive self tells me that that's part of the equation. Here's another broad question while we're at it. What do you think men need right now? Yeah, a lot of things could happen. I personally am interested in the things that men and women can do because I think that while men have an obligation to transform themselves, women have a lot of power to assist that, especially in asserting their nose and getting clear on their own healing from patriarchal dominated society. 
just thinking about the women I've spoken to that maybe consistently get into relationships that aren't the healthiest, finding that awareness in themselves of like, oh, this isn't healthy. And whether that's through journaling or going to therapy or going to a 12-step support group, or I personally really like Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, I think is an amazing program and fixes some of the issues that come up in some of the other 12-step programs and is focused around complex PTSD and is basically free therapy based around inner child work or internal family systems, IFS therapy, and is just, yeah, a really useful free program for writing certain behaviors. But uh, so I, I think that there's just, there can be that hey, you want to be in relationship with us. We're not going to give you that unless you do these things. And I, I wish that maybe that were a little bit more clear, but I think that there is a collective healing right now and everybody's figuring it out to some extent. There's been a lot of changes in the relational world and even what a relationship is supposed to be. I read some things just arguing that people want so much more out of a relationship now. In the past, you know, 100 years, it's transformed from this thing that was just a portion of your life to it needing to meet all of your needs. And that's just not likely and not healthy for the most part. On the other hand, for men, I think that seeking out community is really vital. Community is so important and having people who can emotionally witness you or just take up some of your time, energy, and be connected, talk about some of these things that we're discussing. That can also look like getting a therapist. Therapy is amazing if you can afford it or have access to it. People who are actively in relationships, even if you're not sensing that you're having issues in your relationship right now, having a relationship counselor or a relationship coach can be really helpful. I think therapy in general is good to get when you're not having issues so that it's set up for when you do, especially that there's a dire need for more therapists right now. It can take quite a while to find a therapist currently. Men can just practice forms of mindfulness and witness how different things are making them feel. I think that different media outputs are really popular, especially with men. And media can be really great. I love media personally. I love a good story and I love video games and all of that. But I think that it can become a form of isolation that we maybe name as social in different ways or name as a form of relaxing, but just becoming aware of what is that maybe teaching your mind? So I think a lot of stories in mainstream media, a lot of video games, a lot of music have narratives around aggression and revenge and seeing what it's like to get away from those narratives. How do you feel when you're not plugging away? And these can be forms of addictions. It was really interesting. I don't recall the author's name right now, but the book Dopamine Nation, the author talks about her addiction to romance novels of all things and just her deep obsession with romance novels. And I think it's important maybe to see where is your dopamine being spent and what are you deriving joy from? And it can take a while when you have a habitual or addictive behavior with something and you cut it out, it can take three or so months, up to six months for your dopamine levels to really reset fully. And it can be difficult initially. You can be like, well, I, but I really love this type of story or like this really just makes me feel inspired or whatever it is. But noticing 
like maybe this story has a very unrealistic romance plot where the man doesn't have to do any effort at all or isn't using any kind of realistic tactic to get into a relationship. Just being aware that the media that you're consuming is typically not based in a realistic depiction of what maybe you're wanting. It's not a real education on the things that you're wanting, or it's leading you down this pathway of thinking, oh, revenge, or oh, I can objectify this person, or any number of unhealthy things. And I think that's a really beautiful moment when you can show up fully to life without escapism. I consume some media, but I once did something where I cut out all media for five months. So no, not even any music. I still read news media a a little bit, but at that point it wasn't an issue. And I was still on social media a little bit, but no games, no movies, no music. And it was a really interesting experience because it wasn't until recently that we actually have such a intense access to these things. And in the past 100, 200 years, they were all based on maybe oral storytelling or in books or our pictures on the wall. I mean, even books are fairly recent. So most, you know, most of human history, everything's been delivered through oral storytelling and song. And just considering that. Like this isn't necessarily natural, even though maybe your friendships are based around it or these different things. And just how, how do you feel? What can you create? Seeing what opens up in that and what shows up when you clear out space, when you clear out all of these forms of escapism or isolation, what shows up and what are you moved towards? Like maybe there is a gaping wide hole in your life, but what could be there instead? Maybe that is learning some of these tools for forming a healthy relationship or forming healthier friendships or joining a community of artists or playing a sport or whatever have you. I do think that there is a huge struggle right now in transforming what masculinity looks like in that culture tends to be held within communities. And so, for instance, if you're on a sports team with people with very specific beliefs or some forms of maybe not the healthiest mindsets about women or about gender or about what it means to be a man, you're going to feel shame if you go counter to that. And so... There can be periods where, and this is true for a lot of addiction, so for instance, people getting off of alcohol, there tends to be a period of time of having to find new friends and find new people to celebrate life with. And that's really hard. And I think that it is maybe one of the greatest challenges is some of these cultural ideas are are strongly held. And in this not even post-Trump era, (laughs) there is... Yeah, maybe a rekindling of a lot of toxicity and a lot of unhealthy cultural ideas being spread and and vocalized more strongly and just being aware. Yeah. Another name I wanted to mention was Andrew Tate, especially for a younger generation. We're entering the Andrew Tate era, and that's a whole new layer of challenge. Yeah, I really liked how you were highlighting the dopamine aspect. We're kind of in this dopamine addiction era. Another thing that was coming to my mind when you were talking was pornography, right? That's uh, often, that's something that's been focused on a lot, especially in the context of men. There's a lot of kind of dopamine addiction when it comes to pornography, which is just another thing that, yeah, we haven't had access to for very long in the way that we do now. And so that also creates 
both patterns of addiction, different brain chemistry, and also unrealistic, perhaps, uh, expectations, unrealistic depictions, which even if we're not exactly recreating them, they're still affecting us on some level. Yeah, so I to summarize that all up, it's just how can you show up to life in a way that is more healthy and showing up fully and mindfully. And, you know, that's that's a really big thing, I think, for a lot of us who I feel maybe I've been forced down this pathway of being a more sensitive individual. I can imagine for somebody who hasn't had that uh, influence of quite as much trauma or what have you, maybe that leap is is a lot harder. And I think it's going to take collective action or men talking to each other and calling each other in and having conversations about these different topics, or just naming it, being really excited about how something is going or uh, about something healthy, like introducing something into somebody's life. And maybe in an indirect way, you know, there's so many benefits to mindfulness practice or stepping away from media or starting a creative practice or treating people with more respect. Collectively, we are going to be taking on this beast within us. Quite the opportunity that we're presented with at the moment. I think that's a good place for us to wrap it up. It's been a real pleasure having you here. And before you go, how can people engage with you and your work on the internet? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at sage.liskey. And my website is www.sageliskey.com. That's S-A-G-E-L-I-S-K-E-Y. Cool. And uh, you also run the Radcat Press. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So the Radcat Press is what I self-publish under primarily, considering changing it a little bit to more of an arts collective. But people can find me by uh, searching that as well on Facebook, Instagram, and, uh, and my website. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sage. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much, Arjuna. In our conversation, Sage also outlined his seven core principles of self-care. I wanted to make sure that these got into the conversation somewhere, because I think he covers a lot of really valuable information here. And you can find more information about how to find and follow up and read about these in detail at the end. There's seven main pieces of self-care that I consider really the core of taking care of oneself. Uh, and, and I, I think that maybe people don't have a direct understanding of like, okay, what, what does good self-care do for me? Like, you know, there's the standard of it prevents depression or I don't feel as anxious, but you know, it also helps prevent anger. Stress is a major piece of anger. Uh, it, it, it branches from anger often. And so if you can catch the stress that you're experiencing or just keep it below a certain level. Like you're not going to get as angry. You're not going to get as depressed or you're not going to get as uh, as anxious. So it's just helpful in all these different regards. Maybe it'll help you sleep better. It'll help you in your relationships. Um, it'll help you in your work. It'll help you creatively. And so it's, it's a great thing to pursue um, and to prioritize uh, in life. So again, I focus on these seven components um, and I abbreviate it into this acronym MENS. Um, so M-E-N-D-S-S-S. Uh, so M for mindfulness and, and general rest, really. Um, 
And so that can look like mindfulness meditation. It can look just like being out in nature, staring at trees. It can look like just having silence uh, and quiet time. When I'm surrounded by noise, I'm a big proponent of putting in earplugs, and if it's really bad, putting headphones over that, or just wearing headphones and listening to music, uh, even just playing white noise or something calming, just something to bring you into a space that isn't agitating to your psyche. So E for exercise. Exercise has so many benefits to it across, across the board for life longevity and just feeling good and preventing chronic diseases. Even just walking, like a daily walk, is great. Um, I think it's something like 30 minutes is suggested a day of some form of exercise. And again, that can be something very simple. The N is for nature, going to what, whatever you can get to. You know, if that's a park, uh, a grassy field, I think the less signs of humanity, the better. So getting away from the noises, sights of roads and cars, uh, sights of buildings. You can get into older nature. Um, I think that there's, there's a lot of health in experiencing awe. So really massive forms of nature. So going to see old growth trees, going to the ocean can really be a special treat for, for, for your mind. So then, uh, in the men's cycle, the D is for diet then. Uh, so looking at what nutrients are you taking in? What are you consuming? So I think especially there's a lot of foods that are inflammatory or anti-inflammatory, especially to note how much inflammatory foods you're consuming. That just increases your body's stress. Depression is considered an, inf an inflammatory condition. So just reducing the total load you have on your body. Inflammatory foods include things like alcohol, breads, sugars, fried foods, uh, certain oils, uh, and then anti-inflammatory foods, there's a number of them, but green vegetables, omega-6 fatty acids, fish oil, things like this can help balance things out. So then moving on to the three S's, the first S is safety. Uh, so just, again, creating an environment that is safe, not triggering to you, is away from loud sounds, is away from conflict. Maybe it's, again, like going out to nature or it's maybe in your room. This can also include creating a space of safety in your house, you know, decorating in a way that is nourishing or in your room, having art up that you find brings you to a space that's just feels good, good to be in. The next S is for socializing. And so having relationships and this can be difficult sometimes, you know, we don't always have access to loved ones in the world that we live in. A lot can be said about that of we live in a world uh, and in a society especially that is very isolating in a lot of ways. And even down to the nuclear family system has created a lot of problems for disconnection um, between people and between neighbors. Where are your friends? How do you get social energy? I personally have a list of friends that I can go to. I have, you know, I have a folder on my computer of a photo of all my friends. Uh, and it's just nice sometimes when I'm like, okay, who, who can I reach out to? Who, who can I contact? 
and that's that's really nourishing. You know, I, I do write a lot about how do you form friendships, how do you form community. You know, maybe we can talk about that later, but um, that's uh, that's an aside right now. But the other piece is that um, animals are also very regulating to our nervous systems and can also be very relational. Uh, I also consider nature to be very relational. I don't know if everybody has has the sense I grew up in nature. And so I think that there's a certain type of stability and nourishment that like a tree provides um, a kind of unconditional love in some ways that they provide of just being there, giving us some great oxygen, just being beautiful and and that's amazing. Um, you know, it's it's it can be very nourishing if you develop this sense of connection with the natural world, um, the natural world as a living organism that you know is supporting you in certain ways. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways to get uh, relational nourishment, though, even when you're living in a you know maybe an isolating space or you're new to a town or different things like that. And the final S is for sleep. So there's a lot of little tips for getting better sleep, um, you know, having a better mattress and being in a quiet space, having as little light entering into your windows as possible. And so getting some good curtains, not being on screens after a certain hour. So I think often it's suggested at least an hour before bed, not having any screen exposure, if you absolutely need to be on screens, then using some kind of blue light filter like Flux. There are also blue light glasses uh, that can block some of the some of the light that negatively impacts our sleep. And then there's a lot of nutrients, dietary things uh, that can help with with sleep. So me, for me personally, I can't really eat at night um, or I, I really notice it directly impacting my sleep. Other people say that they wake up if they don't have a meal or something too late. So I think it's a balance and it's just really listening and tuning into your body, what is going on with it. Our bodies also like a certain temperature men and women uh, differ slightly. I don't know the exact numbers, but having a sense of how to keep your room cool enough or warm enough, it's great to be able to pile on blankets. So I think veering on cooler is always uh, is always nice. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that framework. That's That's really valuable. Do you have that framework outlined in one of your books? I do. Yeah, I first framed that in my newest book, Radical Self-Care. Uh, I've also made a little poster of it too, uh, just as a little reminder for people. I get into a lot of other things too. So uh, I think a lot of additional pieces to that. I think I list out maybe a hundred different uh, little self-care techniques in that and get, get a little bit more into specifics around diet and nutrition uh, within that too. Mm, okay, yeah, so definitely a great book to check out, you know, not just for men's wellness, but just general wellness, great resource there. 